Hey, folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore stories of spirituality, identity, and culture from Latinx perspectives. My name is Taylor Amaj. I'm an author and editor, and I'm Puerto Rican. This podcast is a project of Encuentros Latinx, an LGBTQ ministry in the United Church of Christ. I need to apologize to you, dear listeners, for the massive delay in getting this episode out. I have had a lot going on in my personal life, good things mostly. The COVID is not a good thing. I have my first case of COVID. I am at the very, very end of it, thankfully, but uh, that is one of many things that I've had going on the past few months that has just upended my schedule, made things shift around, so I haven't been able to be as consistent with the podcast. But another reason also is that we are changing the podcast format. I know, this is the first announcement of this publicly. We're going to be moving to a seasonal format. That does mean that we're going to be taking a hiatus until about spring-ish. There is going to be a special episode of the podcast that might come out around March because Encuentros Latinx is going to creating change And if you're going to be there, you should come to our workshop that is about trans spirituality. We'll be working through our trans acceptance toolkit that we've developed. It'll be a great time. I'll be hanging out there afterward to get some interview clips of workshop participants who want to share their experiences. So that would be a cool thing to see you there. But because of all this stuff going on and Also, the fact that this podcast has been running for uh, two years, almost three years, it's time to change things up a little bit. So the seasonal format will be pretty exciting. It will be me and a different co-host for a stretch of however many episodes we decide to make in a season. And we'll be going deeper on different topics of Latinidad and spirituality and all this stuff that you're used to hearing about in the podcast with our one-on-one interviews, but we'll be going at it from some different angles. So more to come in the future on that. But in the meantime, that does mean we will be taking a break. So I just wanted to make sure that you have a heads up about that and you don't need to be concerned. We'll come back. We'll be different and new. So I do want to get into introducing today's guest, which is Nico Vazquez. Nico is an author who I know because he and I are in this same Latina, Latinx anthology publication project. I've had several authors come on the podcast in the past to interview and to read some of their work. Nico is published in the adult anthology called Places We Build in the Universe, which as of this recording is still not out yet. It hopefully will be out in a couple of weeks. The anthology that I'm in, Where Monsters Lurk and Magic Hides, came out on November 10th. Very exciting to have it in my hands and to take pictures with it, um, to post on Instagram and to just have this work be out 
in the world. If you really, really like podcasts, you can check out Skylight Books. They are an independent bookstore out in California that is carrying physical copies of this anthology. Yours truly is one of the interviewees on that podcast, so I got a nice opportunity to be on the other side of the mic there. You can hear me and other Latina authors talk about being in this anthology and genre fiction in general. So it was a great time, great conversation. You can check that out if you want. But my conversation here with Nico today was great. This phrase kept recurring, existing in plain sight, which is not how the phrase actually goes. I realize this. But in the course of doing the episode, that's the language that we kept coming back to, just talking about finding communities that you really need as an LGBTQ person, but finding them and being among them in very unexpected places. You don't think that community is around you, but it actually is. It's just a little bit under the surface. And that was sort of a recurring theme in this conversation, in this podcast. So listen to the very end for a reading of Nico's story and listen to our beautiful conversation. And after this episode, look forward to the new things that are coming to the podcast. So let's get right into this Encuentro. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Can you introduce us by giving us your name and pronouns? Yes, thank you for having me. My name is Nico Vasquez, uh, and my pronouns are he, they. Wonderful. And what country or countries do you and your family come from? I am Afro-Latino, so my family comes from Africa, Jamaica, and Puerto Rico. Awesome. And what are some memories or a good memory that you have about growing up with those cultures? I think that the strongest memory I have is really just the mixing of cultures. Like Mm -hmm. my household has never really been one thing. It's almost like you walk into my house and you're in like seven different countries at once just because (laughs) there's, there's just such like a broad mix of cultures. And funny enough, like you, it never like has there's never like a strong line like my mom is the one where my family comes from Africa um she's black and she actually taught me most of what I know about my Puerto Rican side Mm -hmm. that is really cool um my mom is also where I get my Puerto Rican-ness from although I didn't have that much of an experience of getting too much of the culture like I have a very I guess I want to say now it's a, I guess, typical diaspora kid experience where like you don't get the language, but you maybe get some aspects of the culture, but you still feel kind of distanced from it. Did you ever go through anything like that? Or was it really for you like all integrated from the start? I think I definitely had like my struggles with feeling like maybe I wasn't in the culture enough. Um, Mm -hmm. And then just whenever I had those feelings, I was homeschooled. So my mom would kind of be like, okay, so like, let's study it. Like, let's find 
let's kind of find your culture. Let's find where you fit in. And so that kind of became like routine. Anytime I felt a little detached, I would be like, okay, well, let me look up some things that happen in Puerto Rico. Like, let me, it's around Christmas time. What are different Christmas traditions that they have Mm -hmm. over there? Mm -hmm. And that kind of always helped me feel like more grounded in my culture and who I am. That's really cool that your your mom was really able to do that. Because I know one thing that I went through, or it's one thing that I processed sort of in the past few years is like, I went through the whole thing when I was younger of feeling that distance, especially since I didn't learn Spanish. And so I felt sort of like alienated in a way from a lot of my mom's side of the family. Like when I would go over there, like I couldn't understand a lot of conversation. So I was just kind of out of it. And there's all those feelings that go with growing up that way. Um, And I remember for a long time when I really wanted to do my reconnection work that I had this sort of bitterness that, you know, my mom didn't teach me Spanish and, and all this stuff, or she didn't like teach me really anything about the culture, about Puerto Rican culture. But then I realized, or I got a a sort of a new perspective on it one day where I I was like, you know, in my family, it was just my mom who is Latina, Puerto Rican. Uh, my, My dad is a white American. And so having only one parent being sort of the arbitrator of the culture, that's a lot to put on somebody, especially because my, my mom, she's like, well, I didn't go to school. Like I, I would skip school all the time and go hang out at the, at the beach with my friends. Like she was a, she was a rebel. She'd like, so I'd be, I'd be like, mom, like what's, what's this thing about Puerto Rico? She's like, I don't know. I didn't pay attention in class. And, and so through that, I kind of realized that, you know, that I think sometimes as, you know, maybe as, as kids, we might have this, expectation or or maybe even a disappointment with our parents who maybe didn't pass down certain things to us. But then looking at it from a more like gracious perspective, it's, it's like, well, that's, that's a lot to like, to be a a single person and sort of be responsible for like passing down your entire culture to the next generation. Um, I'm sure that there's all sorts of complicated feelings that, uh, you know, people who immigrate to the United States feel uh, not not only the pressure of like well it's easier for the kids to assimilate if they don't learn this or that but then also like well what if the kids really do want to get into it and then I didn't pass down the right like I can just imagine somebody going through just all of that and so it's really cool to hear that you know that your your mom really took that on and like encouraged you to to sort of follow where your research interests laid so tell me more about some of the things like when you were feeling that you needed to learn something about Puerto Rico or or what have you, like what were some of the things that you mentioned holidays and all of that, but what were some other things that you looked into during that time growing up? That's actually super interesting that you talk about your mom being like the only Puerto Rican one, because like for me, for a large amount of my life, my mom was like a single mother. And it was only, I, I say a large amount, it was only till I was about like um, nine that she met my dad, but she still was kind of like, 
like my dad never like taught me Spanish or really like sat with us and like talked about like, oh, well, like I've been to Puerto Rico. Here are some things that I learned about it or here are some things that I noticed. It was always my mom, even though she wasn't the Puerto Rican one who was so interested in making sure like we knew where we came from. And one thing that that brought about was we did like the 23andMe test and okay. I found out that I was mostly Taino on that side okay, um, and then Italian, which like opened up like a whole like research extravaganza on um, ta- the Taino people. And um, one thing that always stuck out to me was that like it, the Taino people are considered extinct, but like mm-hmm. most Puerto Ricans are primarily Taino Mm -hmm. so that was always one thing that I was like wow okay like there's this whole like history that's kind of like hidden because like it's kind of like we're just not seen as existing anymore even though clearly we do still exist and are prominently here Mm -hmm. yeah I remember running into that factoid I, I mean several times I've I've been I've been told that by other people and I've seen it come up just in my own research and uh and it's made me many many times i've been very tempted to get a 23 and me type of test i'm a little bit i feel like i read a little bit too much sci-fi and i'm kind of skeeved out about giving a private company my dna because i've seen <laughs> orphan black and like i love orphan black i love that show but then at the same time it's like you know it'd be a really really good way to figure out the like where all of my own mixtures lay out because I know like my abuela our family is like oh yeah she had she had a good amount of Taino in her because her father was like kind of our family our family's understanding of of that is that there was definitely a lot in uh in her side of the family for sure so and it's it's just interesting it's interesting to to think about and just like like you said i mean you and i are, are both writers and so the way that you just worded that now of like a people who the world says is is extinct but then they're really not they're like existing in plain sight it's kind of it's like if you took that and sort of extrapolated it into some kind of really cool fantasy or sci-fi concept <laughs> like i'm sure i'm sure that could totally work out and that somebody's already done that sort of thing. But it's just, I think it is just one of those things that is certainly a legacy of colonialism. Just this idea of like saying that all of these people were wiped out in the past and they they no longer exist. And yet the very, this very Western form of science, which is DNA testing um, and determining like percentages of how much of, of what you are or, or whatever is saying that like now the you know the, the Tainos have continued to exist this entire time and I know that there especially in in recent years there's there's definitely more of a movement it seems within Puerto Rico to reclaim and restore Taino heritage and language and culture and all of that to prevent it from really actually going extinct there seems to be a lot of people that are like interested in sort of revitalizing it or or having like a a resurgence of it um to make sure that it continues i think that's that's so beautiful though like and it's it's important i've always been someone who is really into history and i know like growing up i didn't 
like for growing up for most of my life, I did not know almost anything about my mom's side of the family. Funny enough, she would always try and make sure I knew where my dad came from because I couldn't actually like see him and ask him those questions. Mm -hmm. But she didn't even really know where she came from. And that's like an experience that a lot of black Americans unfortunately have where we're just Mm -hmm. like, well, I know I'm black. And then that's like the extent of what I know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's such... I I, th- I think there definitely is a lot of there's a lot of pain and and grief and emptiness that can come about with that. At the same time, it it also from a perspective of like being a creative person and being into writing fiction, it's it's one of those things where it seems like it, it it's both like kind of a a hole in the understanding of yourself, but then also you fill that or you, one way you can fill that is by like, I, I don't know, it, it seems to me that like, especially if you're talking about like speculative fiction, there's, I think there's a beautiful way that marginalized people um, can use like fantasy and science fiction and all of that to sort of in some ways cope with that blatant, like the historical record stops at, you know, X year for, um, for a lot of people because of chattel slavery and, and how records were kept and who who got to be recorded in history and who didn't get to be recorded. Yeah, I think that it really it made it where I just like had all of these questions and like mm-hmm. we didn't really have any answers for a really long time until my mom finally did a DNA test. And then I had started a photography class at about the same time. And it made me do like one of my bigger projects on like my family and like history and just like my own personal history. I learned so much that we just like were not taught in schools. That was like huge parts of history. Like Mm. um, zoot suits are kind of just seen as like, oh, well, it's a funny suit that they used to wear. But like the history behind them for Mm -hmm. black and brown Americans is just so important. Like they really became a symbol of rebellion and of our freedom and our, like the way that we persevered and just despite whatever was going on around us, we're able to form these communities and have fun and smile, even though things were tough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and of course I, I, I haven't it's been a long time since I've last heard like the the history of Zoot Suits. I remember there was a class that I took about um, Latino studies. It was one of those online like free college courses that you can do um, and learning a little bit about that. And it's like it's an entire culture that just no nowhere in my schooling did I ever come across that. And the only thing about Zoot Suits that sticks in my head is that uh, that song Zoot Suit Riot, which I think is, nah. you know, we used to love that. That's one of the best songs to swing dance to. Um, but then you pay attention to the words and it's like, wait, wait a minute. What's this? Some, there's something going on here. Um, <laughs> so, so what is the first meaningful exposure to religion or spirituality that you remember? So spirituality and religion were kind of always a big part of my upbringing. Like my, I remember 
when I was small, my my mom bought us like a kid's Bible and she would have us read a chapter of it every night. Like that was like required thing. Every night we had to pray. And eventually we had, eventually we stopped going to church. I don't have a lot of memories of like going somewhere else to church, but I do have a lot of memories of having like a family church in our living room. And it was it was a little bit tough for me because I remember kind of just in my head it becoming where I didn't really connect with any of these things I was doing. And I didn't really realize how little I connected until obviously, you know, you start getting older, like you're a kid and it's just kind of a thing that you do. But then you start getting older and you start really thinking about, okay, well, like, why do I do these things? Like, why do I pray every night? Why do I have to read from this Bible every day? Like, why do we go to family church? Like, what are we talking about? And I kind of started to notice a disconnect for me from that religion and what I was doing to the point of where I I didn't really, it was just kind of a chore. It wasn't something that where for other family members, they were like doing it because they really wanted to do it and because they they really had this faith that I really thought was beautiful. I realized that I, I didn't have it, which really led me into in high school. And this is so funny to say every time I say it, but in high school, I had like a bit of a religious crisis. And I started just researching like everything I could out of like every single religion. And I think that that's something that comes about in my life a lot is just this researching thing. That's kind of how I deal with any sort of crisis of identity that I've ever had is I just throw myself into books. Um, That's probably why I'm a writer. (laughs) I just have all of this knowledge and it needs to go somewhere. And I found spirituality was just something that connected with me a lot more. Um, I've been a pagan witch since I was about 15. And I just, studying religion, I found that I really, I do love the faith that people have in it. And I really do love seeing all of these different stories that come about from it. But it's just never been something for me to be able to get into like a really organized religion. And I I grew up in the South. So I kind of I grew up in the Bible Belt. That wasn't like that sort of exploration was never something that was encouraged. It was always like, here is what we are doing do this. Like, I don't really care what you think about it. Like, we're doing this. And going to different homeschool groups, it kind of started to get worse into that because um, there was a lot of there was a lot of fear mongering, I noticed, and a lot, of, a lot of like control, like religion being used as a form of control and not as a form of like actual faith. So like in a lot of my groups, it was kind of like, okay, well, we're doing this or you're going to hell. So you like, I would pick wisely if I were to you. And I found that in witchcraft, something that comforted me from that was it was less about these deities and it was less about um, like this form of control. And it was more just about like figuring out who you are and like what your connection to the earth itself is. Yeah, I in, in my own conversations with pagans or with uh, with folks that practice some type of like similar sort of spirituality, that seems to really be what what it's about. I I even have a friend who is an atheist, but she also dabbles a little bit into witchcraft, um, or maybe she's like not. And anyway, 
I, either way, it, it just seems like it's one of those things where like there's a little bit more of an emphasis on finding a certain aspect that you connect to individually and sort of focusing on that area. Whereas in, well, particularly in Christianity, like even though we have a ton of denominations, most people are a certain denomination because that's what their family is. And it's, it sure, sure, some people, maybe they go church hopping and you know, really find the differences between the the denominations, but it, it's certainly a, a different vibe. And I mean, I mean, especially I, I can only imagine being in that sort of homeschool culture with that sort of conservative Bible Belt Christianity, and and so I'm I'm really wondering. I mean, since that was your environment, how was it to to even be able to explore? witchcraft. I mean, did you have to like hide it? Did you have to, you know, did, did you feel conflicted because, you know, your, all of your social connections were sort of telling you one way to think about it, but you were finding this other way? I I think for sure I did feel a lot of conflict, especially just, just because of um, that base level, that fear. Um, I remember going to youth group and they, they like, showed us this movie and it was like it was like a huge memory it was like a core memory for me because it was like a movie where it was like uh pretty much if you do the wrong thing then like demons come after you and you go to hell mm-hmm. um and I was like okay well this is a thing that we're showing children then right <laughs> like there was never one thing that really stuck out to me was I was like when I would talk to my grandmother, like the way that she would talk about her faith, it was always so beautiful. But then I would go to like youth group or I would go to like my homeschooling groups and the way that they talked about it, it was like so full of like this controlling nature. Like it was almost like they were trying to teach me, like trying to direct me to be one way as opposed to trying to teach me or trying to ask like how I actually am. So of course I I felt like I had to keep these things a secret so I I when you're a witch it's called like being in the broom closet (laughs) so I would just like I remember stealing like kitchen utensils and like seasonings from my kitchen so I could do like my little rituals eventually like I was able to talk to my mother about it and she was she was really receptive I it surprised me how receptive she was actually because Growing up, I didn't hear a whole bunch about it, but she was like, oh, when I was a kid, like, we went to all of these different churches. Like, I've been several different religions, and, like, my mom's been Muslim. She is currently Muslim again right now. She's been Christian. She's been Catholic. Like, she's been to all sorts of different churches, and she's practiced all of those different faiths, so she really was just very open of me being able to explore my faith however that was. That really comforted me and made me feel more like I was able to talk about it. And it sent me it sent me researching again and I started finding like little pockets of places where there were pagans where I am. And it's like it's so funny because it's like nobody talks about it. But then like once a year or like twice a year, there'll be like a huge festival and you'll see all of these people there and you're like I did not know there were this many like 
pagans in Jacksonville because it's such a conservative town that it's mm-hmm. like one of those there's a church every like five minutes mm-hmm. and it's always the it's always the same kind of church there's there's not really a lot of religious freedoms here or like a lot of pushing people to like decide what they believe I imagine it's it's difficult for anyone of a faith other than Christianity or Catholicism here Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. I think I think we're finding a recurring theme because it it sounds like another example of existing in plain sight. I don't know if that's really like the right phrase, but but just but just again, it's like you think that this certain community just isn't present at all, but it's actually all around. It's just like you can't always see it, or or you have to sort of shift your perspective to be able to see it. And, and I think that that that's just true for for so many things, especially with uh, Christianity being the dominant cultural religious power in this nation. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I found was the number of people who are turning towards these older religions is actually like it's pretty high. It's pretty competitive with the the number of people who are Christian. So while it feels like it's like a faith that you're you're a little bit alone in, it's actually something that like mo- there there are a lot of people out there who are. So it really is kind of like this hidden this hidden people. And I noticed that happens a lot in this country is where we kind of have like one perception of like what an American looks like and that's like probably like a white Christian male. Mm-hmm. But there's so many different ways to be American and there's so many different ways to like exist as a human being. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, one thing that I'm curious about, because I I didn't think about this perspective until one of the recent episodes on the podcast was with uh, Gerard Raju, who's also being published in in our anthology project. And they were telling me, because they are also a witch, and they were telling me that one experience that they have on dating apps is that they'll get people sort of being like, oh, like, teach me something. And it was sort of this whole conversation about how witchcraft is kind of this like cute, trendy thing at the moment. And so as a result, they they get people sort of treating it as like this cutesy aesthetic and, you know, kind of saying like, oh, well, like, teach me all this stuff because because it's cool and because I saw this in an anime or I read this in, in a book or, or whatever. <laughs> is, is that something that, that you find? Like, do, do you find people that are kind of like kind of like that where they maybe they like, you know, they, they have a whole like witchy aesthetic thing and they sort of treat the practice as like, I don't know, because one thing like like Gerard and I were talking about is like, you know, you have these people that see it as this cutesy thing. And so then they're not taking it seriously. And then they do things like put a hex on the moon or, or oh you know, or whatever that was like, like a couple of, of years ago, like not respecting the, the gravity of, of some of the things that are involved in that practice. Is, is that something that you have run into at all? I've definitely seen it a lot of places. I've even I've met people who've been like, oh, like, you can only be a witch if you like 
have like a family line of witches or like something and it, it sounds like they're quoting directly out of like an anime or like <laughs> watched so much Sabrina that it's just like turned into everything that they know about witchcraft and I really do think that is partly because all these years like we we were kind of like taught when we were little kids like oh witches aren't real and then mm-hmm. now it's like we have all of these years of like witch media which is like almost never actually talking about what that practice is and it's like never correct like most of these shows and these things that they're coming from uh to the point where i think that people can't really take it seriously because they aren't taking that time to look into it and realize like oh there are like actual witches in the world and like this is an actual like this is an actual practice and then that separation from like faith and witchcraft I think comes about a lot where people aren't aware of it because you can you can be a witch and you can be of any religion and you can be a witch and you can be not religious at all witches and then wicca and Wiccans are actually not the same thing. And I I think that's another thing that people don't often realize. So then they're like confusing certain faiths for witchcraft or they're like getting these things that they've seen like on Sabrina where it's like, oh, like, well, witches worship the devil and they're all like into Satanism. Like Satanism is also its own thing. Mm-hmm. So I've definitely I've met my fair share of people who kind of had that view. And it's it's interesting talking to them because it's almost like their purpose, some like not for everyone, of course, but for for some people, it's almost like they're purposefully not receptive of it as anything other than like this fun thing just because that's that's what they want is they want to just kind of like have this thing that they can play with so I don't generally take it personally but I I also am kind of like okay well we can't really hang out if you're not going to respect this thing that I do that is like actually really important to me and to like my ancestral culture Mm -hmm. it's so interesting having the conversation in these terms because I remember the messages that I received about witchcraft and paganism and Wicca growing up were, number one, that all of them were the same thing. Number two, that all of them were real. Number three, that fantasy and anime and like all of that were were uh, gateways into those things. Um, And number four, that, you know, it's all not only is it all real and not only does all fantasy and anime and everything lead into that, but it's all uh, devil worship. It's all uh, it's all demonic. It's all of that. And so I, I would find also that even if you tried to explain to Christians that there are differences between these different things that that there's differences between like witchcraft and and wicca and not and all of that like you just said that there are plenty of of christians who'd be like no there is no difference and that is the the messaging that i certainly received and so i think that also contributes to the sort of idea of like not getting 
the nuance of it. And then if you don't have that uh, Christian fear background embedded in you, then the other thing you get is like you were saying, the sort of like, this is a fun, cute toy to play with. And I just think of it as all the the same thing. And but it's without like understanding, I guess, the where all the certain things come from it and all that stuff. So it's it's just fascinating to to me to have this like slightly different angle of of the conversation like comparing that to the messaging that I got growing up so much yeah for sure I think that's uh and that's like actually a historical thing really because originally the reason that paganism and witchcraft and those different faiths got driven out was because the church kind of came in and they were like trying to get people to turn to Christianity but there were so many pagans and a lot of them were people's doctors because like witchcraft deals with a lot of herbalism and that was that was all we had for medicine back then so like those were people's doctors those were people's midwives like those so they were very strong in that faith and so the one way that they thought that they could get people to turn away from that was by demonizing it and that's actually where we get like what you think of as the devil like the reason that it's conflicting and it's like in the bible it's like the devil was like an angel and he was beautiful and then like you look at portrayals of the devil and it's this huge horned beast where we got that was that's a pagan god actually it's the horned god and they they were like actually that's the devil and they're all devil worshipers and then they used that fear to turn people away from the pagans and away from witches so that way they could have more people become christian mm-hmm. so i did that yeah. kind of carried on through all these years which is so crazy to think about because that was so long ago mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and it persists it's it's also, I think, in a way, hypocritical because imagine for a second if the the tables were turned, right? And if uh, if Christianity remained uh, this underground, um, not state-sanctioned movement like it was for its first five centuries, and and imagine if uh, if paganism was the the one or, or you know if, if that was if that continued to be the the main religion, and then you had you had pagans looking at Christians and being like, "Oh, well, you're uh, you're Protestantism and and Catholics. You're you're ball, you're all the same, and and Eastern Orthodox. Oh, oh, you're all you're all the same, or and like Mormons and like calling calling all of that like, oh, that's that's all the same. There's no difference, and it's all I don't know. <laughs> it's all it's all devil worship. Um, it, it sounds kind of ridiculous if you think about it that way, because because as many people understand in our culture, there are very, very stark and significant differences uh, between Catholicism, Protestantism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and and of course, Mormonism. And uh, even though all of them may fall under a very broad Christian umbrella, there's generally more cultural understanding and acceptance of like, oh, well, these are actually different things. Whereas I feel like that doesn't exist as much with um, paganism, witchcraft, and a lot of a lot of the folk religions. Yeah, I think that's it's super interesting to think about because it exists so little that people actually tend to think that like witchcraft and like paganism and all of those faiths are because like paganism is obviously like a huge it's an umbrella term for like so many different things. People usually think those are like new or like something that's like like come from TikTok, but it's like uh, no, those 
our practices like from my ancestors and that's where I get a lot of the witchcraft that I do is actually um, from my research on my ancestors and what they used to do. So how does your experience of your spirituality, how does that play out for you in terms of also being a creative person like with like with writing? Oh, I think it comes into it so often. I love writing about witches because I I haven't seen a lot of like books about witches by witches. Like there there are definitely more of them now, but I just I just noticed like this gap and I I think that's something that I I tend to do is I'll notice a gap in literature or a gap in media and I'll kind of want to fill it. So I definitely write a lot about like biracial people and people who are Latino in in different ways because I think usually you see like a Latino family it's it's very stereotypical or it's like no it's very it's usually very stereotypical Mm -hmm. Um, and there's kind of like only really one way of writing that so I I try and like bend that and then there's there's usually like one way of writing witchcraft and it's very like extravagant and like in your face and I I really wanted to write books where maybe it's like quieter and it's like Mm -hmm. rituals aren't like you have to learn all of this Latin and it's instead just like no you just have to like write a poem pretty much because that's kind of how I how I write my spells as I get it from poetry Hmm. yeah I I think that's interesting because every instance that I can just think of off the top of my head of when I see magic uh, or witches portrayed in fiction. It's like, yeah, it's usually a lot of times it is this sort of hard magic system that the characters have to learn. Like, well, it's all the magic happens in this language. And there's uh, sometimes there's like entire academic institutions behind (laughs) how it works. And of course, you know, there's theories of like, how much in in fantasy fiction, whether your magic system is uh, really treated like a science or academic discipline like that, or if it's something that's much more organic um, or or softer, as as they say. And yeah, I mean, I can't. Well, I guess the Broken Earth series is one example that's popping up in my head as more of a softer sort of magic system. Although that's not like witchcraft to, or like witches type of magic, even though I think in, in that world, um, the people that can do the, the magic are sort of, they're, they're treated equivalently in, in some respects as witches have been in, in our world in history. But, uh, but yeah, I, I struggle to think of an example of, of a fantasy series where it's clearly like this is a story about witches and it's not somehow tied to like well they go to school and they learn these these things and all of this stuff so i think yeah you're definitely uh definitely onto something there yeah thank you i i definitely i like my fantastical witches as much as anyone else like i think it's it's so interesting i wish that i could conjure fire out of nothing like that would be <laughs> That would be a really fun time. Like teleporting mm-hmm. would save me a lot of bus fare. Mm-hmm. But um, I do, I I always do want to see like these like quieter practices respected, and then like also 
seeing like the differences in practice is another thing that I don't see quite often. Like I have a character who's a druid and she's like 15 and I don't think I've ever seen anyone be a druid when they're 15 unless it's like this is the druid priestess from like Dungeons and Dragons and she's like also an elf fairy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Here's here's something that I sort of think about in terms of of my own writing and when I sit down to write fantasy and, and craft fantasy world whenever I'm building a religion or or a practice in in a fantasy world every single time I make it up and I may loosely base some of the theological concepts on Christian theological concepts just because that's like I've studied that the most and I don't Especially if if I'm ever writing something that is more akin to a, a pagan religion, I don't want to use like real deities for for a lot of reasons. One of the main ones being that as a Christian, when I think about the existence of deities and, and beings from other faiths, I sort of have a I would say now it's 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 much more balanced than it was when I was younger, but it's definitely a little bit of a cautious assumption of like, all right, assume this is real and don't mess with them or piss them off in case you know they really are are real. Like like I'm thinking out for for example, um, I don't know if if you saw this or maybe you've seen things like this where like a white girl tries to summon a Haitian deity to like curse somebody and then said white girl ends up dead um (laughs) you know you know what I'm saying like yeah they're trying for that not to be you right right (laughs) well and then also I mean even even if the whole like spiritual element of that if if that turns out to like oh it's it's not at the end of the day it's not real then at the very least there's also the risk of like portraying it disrespectfully. So like you're mentioning how, you know, in your fiction, you're drawing a lot from like your ancestral traditions. Right. And so in, in some senses, like it's that whole thing of, of like, it is your lane to, uh, to write those things versus, versus if somebody else who doesn't have that lineage context. I'm, I'm not quite sure what the right word I'm looking for is, is there. I, I don't know, like, what, what, do you, what do you kind of make of that? Because on the one hand, like, I definitely agree that people from various cultures and traditions should have the space to tell their own stories and, like, write about their own deities but then at the end of the day, you have so many people, for example, non-witches who are just writing witch stories. Um, and you're saying that you see a gap with like there not being enough books about witches by witches. It almost seems like a like a category that like, you know how in a lot of publishing conversations we're like, oh, this is a black author writing about black characters this is an asian author writing about asian characters and so on and so forth i really haven't seen conversation about you know what you're saying about this is a story about witches that's written by actual witches 
Yeah, I think coming back into writing about like different deities, I actually I have a story that I'm working on where like every deity is real in the story. And one thing I kind of pulled from is I thought about like in Supernatural, they they actually did that where it was like, okay, well, every every deity is real. And they the way that they structured it was they're of different power levels depending on who believes in them. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was interesting. It's kind of like fairies in Tinkerbell. <laughs> mm-hmm. But in my thing, it's just kind of like they're they're all real and they all just kind of have different like rulings over different things. And I think it's like it's interesting to play with that through my lens just because uh, for me, I, I do do work with different deities, but I have this like very neutral belief of like... I think that it's possible that any of them could be real or it could be like just kind of what we name different energy forces Mm -hmm. Um, because I do believe that everything has its own energy. So maybe maybe Aphrodite is just what we name like that energy around love or maybe Mm -hmm. there is an actual Aphrodite somewhere. So it's interesting playing with that through that lens because I try and be like very respectful but then I also am aware of the mythologies and it's just kind of like Christianity is so much different from these religions because in Christianity it's like you can't say anything bad about God but then you go over to like say Greece and it's like yeah we believe in Zeus but we also believe he's a dick like (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) Yeah, and even just hearing hearing your response and and the way that you just talked about how like oh well maybe maybe Aphrodite is a personified entity or maybe it's the name that we give to an otherwise sort of nebulous energy. I think in a in a Christian mindset, because our God is personal, we say that God is personalized through the person of of Jesus Christ. So then we take that idea of a of a deity being enfleshed and we sort of project that onto every other religion such that we look at say paganism and our perception of that is oh the these people are worshiping enfleshed uh, personified deities that have you know x amount of of agency or or, you know everything that we sort of associate with the humanization of of a divine being but then you know your your perspective that you just shared of of sort of uh it it being more more neutral like like you're right that that is a different way of of looking at it and just one thing that i constantly come to appreciate and and try to keep in mind with any sort of interfaith conversation that I have is like, yeah, there's there's the Christian idea of every other religious belief out there. But what we need to do as Christians is to actually listen to and hear how these other faith communities talk about and understand their own theology. I, I feel like Christians just in general are not good at that. You know, we we hear we might hear about whatever some some type of theological concept in in Islam and the way that a Muslim describes this practice or that practice or or what have you. And then you would have Christians being being like, well, that see that's that's, you know, Satanism because of of XYZ. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like 
And, and it's just very, um, it's just not, that's just not it. Like it's, it's so much more, it's so much better, uh, and a much better exercise in humility to actually like understand and, and try to enter into the context of, of like how that other faith community is defining and describing itself and its own experiences and to, to sort of like, you know, really, really step down the Christianization of like understanding other people's religions. Because I think even at the end of the day, if a Christian is going to be like, well, I'm still going to be against this religion because of X, Y, Z, it's like, be against it, but be against it after you've settled yourself down and understood that religion as it's described and practiced by that community and not by what you have been taught your whole life about what that religion does or believes. And I find that when you take that humble route, you come out of it not being as as afraid of that other practice or that other religion. Yeah, I think the death of fear is really just education. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I want to get into talking about the anthology you are so regular listeners of the podcast will know that I have had several people from these Latina anthologies that are that are coming out. One of them is a young adult anthology. The other is an adult anthology. And you have a short story that's coming out in the adult anthology, which is called Places We Build in the Universe. And remind me again, well, by the time this episode comes out, it'll already be out and and published, but it is coming out from it's Flower Song Press with help from Be Infinite Publishing. Is that is that right? Yes. Great. So tell me about how you got involved in the anthology. How did you hear about the opportunity and what was your experience choosing and or writing the story that you contributed? So the way that I came about it, it was so interesting um, because it was kind of by accident. I can't remember who had tweeted about it, but someone had shared that Lauren was looking for, Lauren, our editor, was looking for another person to fill a space in an adult anthology writing sci-fi. And I just kind of was like, okay, I write sci-fi, I guess I'll message them. And I, I just sent her a pitch that I literally wrote on my walk home from work the same night. <laughs> like this was something that like just came to mind super quickly. She loved it and uh, ended up asking me if I could join in. And I wrote I wrote the story like faster than I had written any other story which isn't to say that it was something that I rushed but it was just kind of something that came to me like very quickly it was interesting because like I was I remember just kind of being like I've never heard of anything happening here like I I'd never been traditionally published and I didn't I didn't know who Lauren was so I started like doing all of this like background research on her and on like the other contributors and I found out that one of my other friends Michelle Flores was actually in it so I was like okay well obviously like I want to take this opportunity like to be in a book with a friend like that's super cool so then you you had your your pitch and that's also relatable because my story it was not a story that I had already written it was like I I saw the opportunity the call for submissions and I was like I wonder if I can come up with something um <laughs> and I'm actually glad I, I I like the model of writing a pitch first 
and getting it accepted on pitch. I feel like that's that's not very common at this level of publishing where we are. Uh, most my understanding is that you don't get to sell a story or anything on pitch until you're like Tamara Pierce or like Brandon Sanderson, you know, like yeah. you have to you have to like have the whole thing written first and then, you know, they'll see about it. But this wasn't wasn't the case here, which uh, which is very interesting. So what is your story? So my story is titled Hours to Arrival, and it is about a mechanic on a ship that has broken down in space, finding out that there is a traitor on board. So I actually pitched it as like Doctor Who meets Among Us. (laughs) Okay. That's a strong, those are some strong com com titles. Well, and not to go down a whole rabbit hole about com titles, but it's like, that combination, I think, says something very specific. Even though Doctor Who is such a, a big thing, it's probably one of those where you'd be like, oh, well, don't comp to Doctor Who because that doesn't mean anything anymore. But then that specific combination, like with Among Us, it's like, okay, that gives, I think that gives enough of the idea of, of the premise. And some people listening, they're just like, what's a comp title? Comp title is when you say that a story is like another thing in order to sort of market it or give people a very like two second idea of what to expect in in the entire story. It's a whole thing that authors have to deal with when it comes to querying agents or doing any sort of pitching for trying to get their stuff published. So I want to invite you to read an excerpt from this story of yours whenever you're ready. Four hours until Mechdroid arrival. Josie refused to leave me alone. I don't know that I actually want to be alone, but I was angry no matter what. I mostly already am. Dr. Remus isn't my caretaker exactly, but he had taken better care of me than anyone else. He was brilliant, and now he's gone. It takes a long time for me to look up from my spot on the ground. Yenis and Josie look down at me both with similar concerned expressions. Yen doesn't try to hide the silent tears that slip down his cheeks, but Josie tries to keep her composure. Why? I croak out. My voice sounds like I haven't used it in days. My throat tight. Yen shakes his head and Josie looks away. I register the drop in temp, the way I can almost see my breath. Everyone must be panicking by now, realizing that we're running out of time. Realization dawns on me like a brick dropped on my head and I feel nauseous. I told him. Yanis looks at me, his brows furrowed. What? I told Remus about the traitor. He said he was going to try and ask around. I don't look at either of them, ashamed after how adamant I'd been about keeping it a secret. He must have figured something out, Josie says in horror. Talk to the wrong person, oh God. For a long time, we're silent. We need to stick together now, Josie says quietly. A bit late, huh? I laugh, wryly. She looks upset and a pang of guilt floods through me. Maybe we should tell the others, warn them, suggests Yenis. The killer has to be the same person planning to sell to the Galen. If this is what they do when they're discovered, we can't let them feel boxed in, Josie says, shaking her head. We need to figure out who it is and get them somewhere they can't hurt anyone. Oh, exclaims Yen. I found something odd in Dr. Steinfeld's room. 
He produces a small round device from his pocket. I recognize it, finding comfort in focusing on something I know and I can take it from him, turning it over in my hands. This is a jammer, I say, marveling at the device. A hell of a model, too. It could give the CSI a run for their money trying to crack it. Didn't you say you cracked it with a radio, Josie asks. I look up. Oh, yeah, I shrug. It's a good radio. She gaps at me, disbelieving as I rub the back of my neck. Just then, a silent alarm goes off. The lights from the corridor changing to a flashing red color. Captain Sparks calls a meeting. I knock my head back on the wall. We don't have time for this. Come on, if we don't show up, people will start asking questions. Yenis looks gloomier than I'm used to, his usual brightness dimmed like the light on the ship, and I don't think anyone knows the right ones to ask. Breach in containment unit. Urgent. Four hours until total system failure. Yen had always had a way of being right about things. Beyond him being a scientist, he just seems to know when things are going to go right and when they're going downhill. This meeting is the latter. Captain Sparks tries to get things settled, banging a fist the size of the gavel she ignores against the table. The way that her eyes darken, standing out against her blue skin, makes her seem all the more like someone to be listened to. Her voice is strong and commanding as she calls for order. I know we're all hurt about Dr. Remus, but we can't lose our heads. I've attempted to alert the authorities. However, she hesitates. The state of the ship is unfortunately affecting the signal. I have to consciously keep a straight face. The comms were one of the first patches I made, an easy fix in case something was more wrong than I anticipated. However, when we get to the docks, I am sure they will handle things. For now, Mr. Delgado, what is the status of the repairs? I'm uneasy as all eyes turn to me. They're worse than anticipated. The storm did a number on the engine. I'll need more time to get it fixed. I offer them with a cool smile. The captain frowns deeply. I was afraid of that. Is there an issue I should know about? I ask, raising an eyebrow. Dr. Meredith scowls at me. Do you mean besides the murder on board? Actually, yes, there is a problem, Captain Sparks says, addressing the room. Most of you were brought here because you are some of the most brilliant minds native to Earth. You've all given up years of your life on this mission. And knowing the risk, knowing the level of uncertainty, you all volunteered to be here in the pursuit of knowledge. With that in mind, I feel you are owed transparency. As I'm sure you all know from your research, the magic that we're carrying is highly sensitive and dangerous, being housed in a makeshift version of its own environment. The energy in the room is tense, most of the crew, the scientists, exactly knowing where this must be going. The ship was not originally built with this environment, and unfortunately it isn't recognizing it as important enough to maintain in its damaged state. I mutter a curse. It's shutting it down, isn't it? The captain nods. Shutting it down? What will that do? Asks the cook, Mary, looking nervously around the table. In simple terms? I ask, glancing at the captain. She nods, giving me permission to be honest. Without the trees housing and keeping it neutral, the magic will eat through the ship. There's a chorus of concerned gasp, people asking questions over each other. What are you sitting here for? How do we restabilize it? What are we going to do about the killer? People start yelling, realizing that whoever killed Dr. Rumis must be in the room right now. When Captain Sparks gets a hold of things, they end the meeting and have everyone agree to stick to groups. I assign them all odd jobs, most of it just busy work to keep them distracted from the current disaster. 
Surprisingly, Josie offers to keep watch. Yen and I are to check out Dr. Steinfeld's quarters to search for anything more linking him to the Gaylene and the murder. We don't know what we expect to find, only that the bloody shirt isn't the answer. I try to calm Yen as he sits on the edge of the bed, clearly distraught as the idea of his friend unravels in his hands. Dr. Steinfeld becoming a stranger. I don't know him as well as Yen, but I still never thought him capable of this. It's only a clue, I say, but Yen doesn't look up. Maybe. There could be other reasons for the blood and the signal scrambler, I whisper, crossing my arms. When we return, only one group hasn't, Van, Mary, and Dr. Steinfeld. We, ser- we find Van searching for blankets on his own, his partners having left to get oxygen gear from the room nearby. The door he points to is locked, and when I knock, there's no answer. Van pulls out his master key, and as he swipes, Yen suddenly lurches forward. Wait! His warning is a moment too late. The door slides open with a whoosh, and we all brace. Van, Yen and I shout. As he's pulled forward, Yen grabs hold of his jacket. The door to the room behind us slams shut. The airlock is wide open, the darkness of space glaring at us as it tries to pull Van out. Chris, get it shut, Yen screams. I jam my elbow into the emergency panel glass, turning my face away as shards whip by. The fix should be simple, a breach in the airlock and a jammed door that needs to be shut. But as I try to fix it, the computer shows an error. Panic lights me like venom burning. I bash my hand into the pad, frustrated and lightheaded as the oxygen goes. If I can at least shut this door, I can deadbolt it. Yin grunts with effort, trying to pull the man against the suction. As small as the red alien is, Ban is caught firmly in the force of gravity. I try and think fast, seeing Yin's grasp start to slide. Spots appear in my vision, air not coming, my chest constricting. I pull out the sonic in my pocket, jamming it into the slot in the panel and override the system. I bash a code into the keypad, a last resort for the situation. I'm afraid the computer will deny me, but then... Oxygen net activated. Suddenly the door closes, the gravity pull stops, and the three of us collapse as we gasp for breath. My chest is on fire and Yen coughs beside me. Ban is shaking, curled up on the ground. I squeeze my eyes shut, blink, and try to catch myself. With a groan, I state, that was not fun. Oh, I thought it was a blast, Yen says between coughs. Room 632, safe, says the computer before the door slides open. Josie and another scientist runs in. Chris, are you all right? Josie says, kneeling beside me. I nod even though I don't feel all right. Dear mother of God, mother's the man that came with her. I crane my neck to look at him. He's staring out into the space from the windows. Yen pushes himself upward and his jaw drops open. No sound coming out. At first, I see nothing but darkness and stars, floating debris and equipment. But then I see it my throat tightening, floating out in the stars, her body swaying in the still void, is Mary. Well, thank you. That was very, very interesting. I'm like, like I'm sitting here like listening. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting into this. And well, in order to find out what happens next, I'll just have to read the anthology, which I did pre-order. And hopefully it will be here at my house by the time this episode comes out. Yeah, I just I love how these anthologies are 
giving Latinos, Latinas, Latines, Latinx, it's it's giving all of us a space to not only like write stories that are like from our culture, but like literary, but like specifically the speculative fiction. I, I just feel like in, in some senses, there's such a there's more of a renaissance of this type of thing now compared to when I was growing up. Um, and it's just amazing to to have people come on the podcast who are a part of this and to also be a part of it myself. So so thank you for sharing this this story. I'm like, I'm like, because you said Doctor Who and I'm like pretending I'm like staring at my wall as I'm listening. And I'm like, OK, I feel like I'm watching an episode of Doctor Who right now. <laughs> That's actually how I got ready to write this story is I watched um, because I've written shorter works before, but I hadn't like written a short story, especially with such like a word constraint. So I ended up watching the Doctor Who episode, I believe it's called 45, where he's stuck with Martha on the failing spaceship and like they have like a set amount of time to get everything done because I just felt like that episode was such a good example of a short story played out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's it's been such a long time since I've I'm sure I've seen that episode. But just from the way you're, you're describing it, yeah, that the whole like ticking time sort of way of structuring a story is always pretty effective, especially for a shorter work. So so yeah, uh, dear listeners, if you are left in suspense, you're going to have to pick up your very own copy of Places We Build in the Universe and find out what happens. Nico, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the episode and to have this great conversation with me today. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. It was a really good time. Before we sign off, though, I do want to make sure that people know where they can follow you on social media. Yes, uh, the majority of my social medias are styles IG underscore. You can follow me there on Instagram. You can follow me there on Twitter. And then you can actually find my YouTube channel if you feel like I'm not annoying enough on Instagram, um, <laughs> where I do like a lot of weird videos in my living room at 3 a.m. Wonderful. What a great note to end on. Thank you again for coming on the show. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. On behalf of Encuentros Latinx, we hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.